All righty, well, it's one o'clock, so we'll go ahead and get started because I have to teach you guys everything about publishing in the next 60 minutes. 45 minutes because I want to give you guys some question and answer time at the end. So, uh, how are you? Am I doing good? Super. Uh, are you, I know it's been a long day so far. I know you guys have, have sat and listened quite a lot thus far today. And I apologize uh, that, that I'm getting you guys third. I wish I could have gotten you first. Uh, for one thing, because then I, I, could, I could leave. But then also, <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> because uh, I feel like this is, this is one of those topics that is, uh, it can get mildly tedious if we're not careful, but I want to make sure it does it. Because talking about publishing is a lot less fun than actually writing and publishing is. So uh, give you guys a little bit of insight on me. I mean, you may have read my bio when you signed up for uh, this class. But he is me. And I mean, this is a really old picture, if you can't tell. It's like five years old. I've, I've gotten much hairier since then. But uh, I have my MFA in creative writing. Uh, so that qualifies me to teach, I guess. Uh, I am a children's book author. Uh, here is a smattering of my books. These two, uh, this one just came out uh, two years ago, and the paperback came out last year. And then uh, here's another one of my novels. This is my first novel that I ever published right here. Um, so that's uh, my writing experience is that. I have other uh, writings out there. I've also been a youth children's pastor for a really long time. Uh, I... I when I graduated from Bible college, uh, I went into youth ministry, and then I got into children's ministry after that and worked in children's ministry for many, many years. Um, and right now, I'm actually a teacher. I teach uh, Bible at Valley Christian School in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, and all that's to kind of, uh, that stuff pays the bills for my true love, which is writing. I, I, I've been a writer, been wanting to be a writer for about as long as I can remember. So hopefully, and I'm going to ask this question, and hopefully everybody will say, yeah, that's me. How many of you guys want to be a writer? Every, okay, just wanted to make sure we're all in the same room here together. All right. So uh, when you talk about wanting to be a writer, a lot of times, so you want to be published, you probably think about, oh, man, like you have these big dreams, right? You're like, ah, oh, I'd love to go. I can't wait maybe someday to sign books. That would be cool. Going to a book signing. Uh, New York Times bestseller, obviously. That's, we want that, right? Uh, we want to get the, the awards. We want the stickers on our books or whatever we wrote. You know, you wrote that great, uh, that great commentary on Romans, and now you want it to be chosen for the one Nobel Peace Prize that somehow brings peace to the Middle East. It's going to happen. You know it will, right? You want all this stuff. You want the movie deal, right? Everybody wants, I don't know how you're going to get a movie deal when you're publishing your sermons, but it's cool. Somebody will pick it up. I'm sure it's going to happen, right? So these are kind of all the things we think about when we're talking about publishing. But I, I think uh, we could also all agree when you really think about it, most of these things are out of our control as writers, right? You can't control how many books you sell. You can't control if people like it enough to give it an award or if it catches somebody's attention to give you a movie deal. Or even really you can't control if you get to get asked to go and do a lot of book signings and get to go on tour and all these things. Those are all out of your control. What I'm going to talk to you today is about what's in your control as a writer in this publishing process to help you set yourself up for the best chances you have to see your name and your writing in print and for other people to read what you write. So what is it? I love Snoopy. He's always been my hero as a writer. And as he says here, I'm a great admirer of my own writing. I'll bet you we would all agree that that's true about ourselves, right? Otherwise, what are you doing here? If you don't think you're good at writing, why are you even talking about this thing? I'm a great admirer of my own writing, and the goal of publishing really is to go from you being an admirer of your own writing to other people being an admirer of your own writing, right? In fact, the word publishing, some people don't know this, the word publish predates even the printing press. Like It comes from the early 1400s is when it was first really used it comes from the Latin word publicus, and it means to make something publicly known, right? So the idea to publish something is to take something that's private and make it public. That, in a nutshell, is what publishing is all about. So when we're talking about this, there are more opportunities then for you to be published today than there have been at any other point in human history. 
Today, right now, you have so many more opportunities to have the things that you've written be read by other people than any other. I mean, can you imagine how much Hemingway would have killed to have Twitter, right? Like, oh my goodness, he would, he killed for other reasons, but we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) But so hopefully you see that the goal here is to make your writing open for other people to access and therefore for you to have an audience that wants to read what you wrote. Now, if we're talking about making your writing publicly known, and I said there are more avenues for you to be published today than ever before. I'll show you guys just some of those. You might be surprised that I use some of these. But for instance, Facebook. Now you're like, wait a minute, hold on, that's social media. Sure, it's social media if you do it the way you know, your, your, your cousin does it and just posts cat videos or whatever. But Dan Rather, I don't know if you guys have read any of the stuff that Dan Rather's been posting on Facebook and a few other journalists, they've revolutionized Facebook publishing. They have these pages and they're posting these long editorial essays that people are taking. They're printing them out off of Facebook and distributing them at colleges. They're putting them out there. They're asking for permission to reproduce them in newspapers. And this is all happening on Facebook. Dan Rather, for a while, thought he was kind of, you know, he was done. So he just started posting this stuff on Facebook because he didn't have, there was nobody that wanted to print a couple of things he wanted to write. So he wrote it himself, put it on Facebook, and now he's got this huge audience. I mean, obviously it's Dan Rather, so he already had a huge audience. But still, he's revolutionizing this idea of publishing on Facebook. Twitter, you realize the last two presidential elections were won on Twitter, right? Whichever candidate won Twitter won the presidency. And now Twitter has given us the, uh, the possibility of doubling our character count. So instead of it, be, it used to be 140 characters, now it's 280 characters, or might even be like 720, I, I don't really remember. But still, you have the possibility of writing things on Twitter that can be read around the world in seconds. Uh, Instagram. Uh, you know, the idea of Instagram stories, have you guys ever, if you use Instagram but you don't use stories, this, the whole idea of making a narrative and sharing it publicly, Instagram has revolutionized that because they've given us all possibilities to combine the written word and visual storytelling in ways that we hadn't thought of doing before. Like, it used to be if you had big giant words on a screen, everybody thought that was dumb. Now, with Instagram, everybody's like, oh, I get what you're trying to say. It's, it's a, another way of publishing. Maybe not traditional. Snapchat. If you want to communicate with the under-20 crowd, Snapchat is a great way to do it. You look at some of the journalistic efforts of magazines like Vogue or, uh, I mean, the New Yorker's doing it, where they have articles that they're only putting on Snapchat. And these articles are getting read, and people are going through, they're flipping through, they're they're reading everything, and they're able to engage in this stuff in ways they never would have engaged inside the magazine itself. Keep going. Tumblr, I don't know if you guys use Tumblr, if you're familiar with Tumblr. Tumblr was created for artists as a place for artists to share their work, whether it's art or print. It's a free social media platform. It's a free uh, site that will host what you write. And it, it, there's no limitation on what you can post, and it's free to share. You've got blogging, right? I think we're all kind of familiar with blogging at this point in, in the Internet. But basically, you write up stuff, you put it up on your website, and you hope that somebody will come along and read it, right? Uh, you've got podcasts. These are making a resurgence in a real way. People are writing, and instead of just posting it up, they record themselves reading what they wrote. They put it up as a podcast, and they're getting an audience. Uh, you guys might have heard there was the old pod, uh, the podcast a couple of years ago, uh, To Make a Murderer. Did you guys hear about that one? It was just she had started researching this murder case, and she started podcasting her research. So every day after she'd do the thing, she'd record herself talking about her research. The thing blew up. So many people were into it because they were like, it... it it caused them to view crime in a different way. It's, it's really amazing. YouTube is shaking up the market of publishing and of writing because now you're thinking visually, you're thinking about writing videos, but you have guys that go on YouTube and tell their stories, right? It's called vlogging where they sit down and they just talk to a camera. And so they read their script that's sitting behind the camera and it's still writing. It's still putting it out there. You got people who have 
videos that have thousands and thousands and millions of hits. And then finally, uh, this is just, a, like I said, a sampling, but Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing. These are all free, and these are all avenues just right now that you have that our ancestors would have killed for to have as far as publishing goes. They're 100% free. You're fine. 100% free, and this is where so many people are at. So if you're here, you know there are other people using these. You know there's an audience out there somewhere that's anxious to hear what you or whoever else has to say. Now, that's, this isn't the only things that I'm going to talk about. In fact, I'm going to talk about some other stuff, more traditional publishing. But I wanted first off to tell you that your dream of being published is more possible now through these and other avenues than it's ever been before. So take heart, take hope. Let's get going to talk about how hard it is now. All right. <laughs> so really, the publishing path has three steps. And these three steps are the same no matter what it is you're writing, whether it's that you're writing a tweet, whether you're writing a seven-part, a seven-volume commentary on the book of Revelation, or anything in between. It always has these three steps. The first step is creation. The second step is production. And the third step is is distribution. This is publishing. Creation, production, and distribution. <clears throat> now, uh, I'm primarily a storyteller, so to help you guys kind of see how this works out in real life, I'm going to tell you my story of how I got published and pull lessons from my story out because I only know my story. I don't know anybody else's. So I'm going to tell you my story to let you guys see how these three stages worked through creation, production, distribution. So uh, the creation stage started when I was a little guy, just a cute little guy, wearing a suit, wanted to do your taxes. That was me. And then we got to the production stage. That's my author photo. I thought I looked awesome. And uh, that was uh, my, whenever we sold my book to a publisher. The publisher said, hey, I need a photo. So we got that done. And then the distribution stage happened whenever my book finally hit bookshelves. And I took a shelfie with my precious first novel uh, when I was out in the real world. So here's how the whole thing starts. Creation, this idea of let there be something, right? So for me, it all really started when I was really little. I was 10 years old and I wanted to be a writer because I had no friends. And I went to the library all the time. And the only friends I had were the friends I read about. And then finally, I got frustrated that these friends weren't playing nice with me. So I said, I'm going to make my own friends, doggone it. So I went home and I started writing stories, right? And from the time I was 10 years old all the way up until I was uh, like 22, 23, I kept that dream of writing hidden inside. And I would write and I would write. But more than that, I would read and I would read. I loved to read so much. That's what inspired my, my drive to be a writer. And I call that whole time the gestation period. And that's the time whenever, as Gene Fowler said, the best way to become a successful writer is to read good writing, remember it, and then forget where you remember it from, right? So this is a time when you're acquiring life. You're building up your tanks full of things to draw from. And uh, I like to say this, we can't create if we have nothing from which to create, because only God creates ex nihilo, right? Only God creates out of nothing. That's not us. We're not God. So we have to have something to create from. So this gestation period is more than just a cop-out to say, I'm not quite ready to write yet. I need to read some more. It's a real thing that you have to have. You have to fill up your tanks. You have to fill up your experience. If you don't have something to pull from, you're not going to have anything to put down. So the gestation period for me happened all those years from the time I was like 10. I really knew I wanted to be a writer. I started reading and reading and reading. I read books about writing. I read books that were awesome. I read books that were terrible. I read books that were classics and books that would probably, I, I can't even remember their, their titles now. They were so poorly written. I read all that stuff all the way up until I got married and my wife found my secret stash of writing. <laughs> she found my stories and then I... I I was so embarrassed, but she said, no, you need to try. You need to actually start writing. And from there, I started uh, with her, with, with her encouragement, strong encouragement. I actually started to put down a story 
that meant something for me. And that story uh, was this creative act where I found inspiration. Uh, the inspiration I got was I went to the John F. Kennedy Museum in Dallas, Texas, and I read about how they, they talked about how his uh, ties with the Bay of Pigs invasion had kind of set up the stage for his assassination. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I'd never heard of the Bay of Pigs invasion because uh, I was homeschooled, so I didn't really hear <laughs> all the good stuff from history. So I went and did research, and that caused my inspiration. And I thought to myself, if I was a kid in Alabama in 1961, how would I handle all that? And that was the inspiration. And I sat down and I started writing this book, The Troubles of Johnny Cannon. And as I wrote, come on, you thought to come over here and do it. It's okay. As I wrote, uh, it took me a long time. I started writing in uh, whenever I was 22 years old. And that was in 2000, uh, when I was 20, yeah, when I was 21 years old. That was in 2002. I didn't finish this book until uh, 2011. So that was nine years that it took for me to write this book. Nine years of false starts, nine years of getting frustrated and throwing it away, nine years of deleting the file, right? Nine years of talking to people about it and them scratching their head and me getting discouraged. Nine years. But the thing is, it doesn't matter how long it takes. All that matters is that you create the best thing that you know how to create, right? It doesn't matter if it takes you forever to compile your thoughts together, to get it all into a form that you know is ready. All that matters is, in the end, you've made the best thing you know how to make. And revise, 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 revise. As Stephen King said, only God gets it right the first time. I wrote this thing, and this was in 2011, and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm so happy that I've finally written a book. And when I wrote this book, and I was actually happy with it, I was ready to share it, it was actually only about this long, right here. This is how long the book was. It was half the size of the finished product. Not only that, but in the original version of the book that I wrote, this little guy right here, he was half robot. He and his robot parts came from another planet. And there was, uh, he went in and he uncovered all this, these plots of aliens that were inside Washington. And there were superpowers. It was all over the map. But I did it. I wrote it. <laughs> I had to revise that thing so much and rewrite it to get it right. Because that was not right. <laughs> that was a lot wrong. That was definitely not right. Only, But you know what, though? Whenever you've written something, it's so easy. And this is, I want to encourage all of you because you're all writers. It's so easy, no matter what it is that you're writing, to get discouraged after you're done and you feel that release. You're like, oh, I finished it. This is great. And then you look at it, you say, oh, I finished that? Really? This is not great. That's because we all have to revise. Everybody has to keep going. That's the creative act, right? That's, that's our process is to keep going like a potter at the wheel we keep working our writing, no matter what it is you're writing. Even if it's as small as a blog post to something as long as, as a novel or a movie script, whatever it is, you're going to have to write more than once on the same thing. And then finally, it's complete. And I, I knew whenever it was done that I had, like I said, I, I, I was proud of myself and I was ready to try to find a path to publishing. Because little did I know, I, at first I thought that, was all, that this was the only step. I just had to complete it. And I throw it out there and boom, New York Times bestseller, right? I thought writing this was the hard part. But that's only step one of the three-step process. And so after completion, it was time for me, uh, yeah, never give up. And this is so important. The only guarantee that you will fail is if you choose to stop trying. And I want to make sure that you all hear that. Because as writers, I, I, I'm betting most of us at some point are in this stage, right? Even I right now, I'm working on a book right now and I'm in this stage and it's so easy to get frustrated and to give up and to step away from it and say, no, this is too hard because it is. It's hard. It's hard to write. It's hard to look at a blank page and make words happen and do words good and things like that. It's really hard, but you only fail if you choose to stop trying. So take that encouragement and then we'll talk about what happened next. Production. And production, when we're talking about this sort of thing, is really all about reproduction. I'll explain that in a second. But uh, this idea that the thing that you made, 
we want to get copies of the thing that you made ready to go into other people's hands. So for me, <clears throat> the big thing I had to decide after I completed this book was, do I want to go the route of a traditional publisher or a non-traditional publisher? And I had some faculty members at my college that sent me down and they said, you know, I think you should go self-publishing. This is the right way to go. I had other people that said, man, no, the only legit way to go is through uh, traditional publishing. So it was a very confusing time. And even just in kind of walking around talking with you guys already today, a lot of you guys are also in that same place where you're like, which way do I go? Do I self-publish? Do I try to go traditional publishing? This is a big concept. And it was something I had to wrestle with. And I finally realized that there's pros and cons to both sides. So I'm going to present these to you and let you do with it as you feel right. Traditional publishing, you have to find a literary agent. Almost 100%, you have to get a person who works in the business who will represent you this person will negotiate your contracts with a publisher. This person will help you find the right editor. This person will be your partner in crime as you're doing this. For me, I, I miraculously, truly uh, got to meet my agent through, uh, a, I had gone to an online forum to get some critiques on this book. And so I posted the first chapter of my book online to ask other authors to critique it, not knowing that she, my agent, was on that forum, she saw the chapters and she emailed me and said, hey, I read your chapters, I really like them, I'd like to read more. And you know, I'm stressing out now, because uh, I, I don't even think I'd completely finished it at the time. So like, oh, give me a little bit of time, let me go finish it. And so I sent it to her and then she emailed me back, she said, okay, you know, we're gonna, I want to represent you. And uh, it, it blew my mind. She's the agent who represents Rick Riordan with the Percy Jackson series. So the very fact that I was able to just by honestly no effort, don't hate me, but to, to find her was a miracle. It really was. And I had already tried a hundred different ways to find an agent before that. I'd sent out a hundred query letters to agents and been rejected by every single one. So then in this case, for me to not have sent that out for her to find me, really I consider it to be an act of God in helping my path go forward. So you have to find a literary agent. And then uh, the literary agent and you will work together in traditional publishing to get your book into the hands of an acquisitions editor. An acquisitions editor is a person who works at a publishing house, and their primary goal is to get new work, is to get new books that they will then uh, publish as a publishing house. So she, your literary agent, will get your book into the hands of as many acquisitions editors as she thinks will be perfect for it. And then once the acquisitions editor reads your book, and they like your book, they will ask if they can acquire your book and they'll offer a contract for the rights to reproduce your book. So they're not buying your book from you. They're purchasing the right to make copies of your book and sell them everywhere that they're allowed to sell books. You still, no matter what in traditional publishing, you still own the rights to your work. Your story is still yours. That's a common misconception. People are like, I don't want to go traditional publishing because I don't want to give up my rights. Well, you don't give up your rights to owning the story. The story is still yours. You just allow them to reproduce it. So for me, uh, my agent, she hooked me up with several acquisitions editors. Most of them found my voice annoying. But one acquisitions editor liked the book as long as I'd revised. And so I went back into the revisions. And uh, this is what I learned is that the upside here is that they pay you. And that's nice. <laughs> they... <laughs> They give you money and ask if they can reproduce your book. And you th that's wonderful. I like money. That's good. And so they pay you. That's the upside of traditional publishing is they pay you and they work with you. You have a team around you of, of artists and you have a team of designers and editors who come in and make your work look so much better than it ever could on your own effort. But here's the downside is... One, it's hard to break into traditional publishing, and two, it requires a lot of sacrifices. You do have to give up some things. Like, for instance, I did not, I had no say in the cover of my book because I went traditional publishing. Thank God this, this cover rocks, but I had no say in this. I had no input. I, they sent me a thing and said, hey, here's the cover, and I was like, oh, all right, that's great. 
I had no say in, in who got to be the designer. I had no say uh, in a lot of ways on what the marketing plan was going to be, on what the publicity plan was going to be. I, when the editor made suggestions, if I didn't like some of their suggestions, most of the time they were okay, but sometimes if I didn't like the suggestion, then they would postpone the release of the book until I came around to their way of thinking. <laughs> Usually they were always right, so that's okay. But still, you have to make sacrifices, and it is a hard game to break into to get into the traditional publishing, especially if your idea is, I want to get into X. You, you, have, you hone your target in too tightly, and you say, I want this agent and this publisher. I mean, there are, it's not as hard as, as some people say it is if you are open to, uh, to flexibility, but it is still more challenging than the other option. And the other option here is... You have non-traditional book publishing. And so non-traditional book publishing is self-publishing. Looking at Kindle Direct is by far, I think, the leading uh, self-publishing platform right now. And for good reason. Kindle Direct is uh, it's easy. And it, uh, I mean, it, it puts your book into the hands of, uh, it puts your book on a recommended list for literally millions of subscribers on the, the Amazon Kindle Direct platform. So there's a lot of good reasons to use Kindle Direct. They also have Smashwords. Smashwords uh, is more for print books if you really want to print manuscript. And then Create Space is another one that gets, so Kindle Direct obviously only works with Amazon's platform. Uh, Create Space puts your book in the uh, iTunes book, Google Books, uh, Barnes & Noble's Nook Marketplace. So these three, so like if you wanted to say, I want to go on Amazon and be in print and be in iTunes, then you're going to need to use all three of those platforms if you're going to be self-publishing. Create space, yeah. So they put you in the direct publishing of Kindle? Because I knew they did. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Then what creates space? Yeah. That's. I guess I only had to do that, one. That's a newer development. That must be a new. Uh, that must, yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad that they're doing that for people. The less hurdles you have to jump over, the easier, right? Yeah. yeah that's awesome. So I didn't know that. So then, yeah, Create Space. There you go. Just uh, go that way. I haven't ever used Create Space. I have used Kindle Direct for some other stuff. So I, I know they're. Uh, it's a very user friendly interface. I don't know as much about Create Space, but. Is it good? Awesome. There you go. Everybody take note of that, right? Create space. If you're going non-traditional, that's the way to go. Um, all right. So the thing about non-traditional publishing, those of you who have done it already, you already know this. Every single role is yours to fill. Every single role. I mean, like I said, I when I came to traditional publishing, I had an editor who read my stuff to make sure it was awesome. I had a copy editor who counted my commas and my... my uh, my punctuation marks. Literally, I got a, I got a document that showed how many times I used each punctuation mark throughout the document. It was wonderful. <sighs> anyway, um, <laughs> and uh, but when you're self-publishing, man, you're in charge of figuring out what you're going to do for the cover. You're in charge of editing it, designing it, doing the layout, uh, marketing it, everything else. So every role is yours to fill. And uh, the upside here is, holy cow, you have complete creative control. And that's when you're a creative person, that is so appealing because it can be nerve wracking to think about letting somebody else take your baby and maybe mess it up. Right. I mean, you've written this thing. You've, it's been in your heart for years and years. And now you're just going to trust somebody that you're just one of many things they're working on to give it the kind of care that you would give it. So, right. It's hard. It's tough. That's the upside, is that you have complete creative control, and anyone can do it. Anyone can. Like a six-year-old who knows how to type could go on and put something in to create space and publish something, right? Anyone can do it. Whether they'll do it well, who knows? But the downside is your limitations are going to shine through if you're self-publishing, right? Because it's all you. So the places where you're not so good you know, maybe maybe you're an awesome writer, but as far as cover design, not your bag. Well, unfortunately, it's supposed to be your bag, so it's going to shine through, right? Your your cover may not be as stellar 
as mine are. And that's, that's something to think about. Also, maybe you're, you don't edit yourself very well. Most of us don't edit ourselves very well. Um, that limitation is going to shine through in your manuscript whenever you self-publish it. And, uh, and the other side of this is you may never make a single penny if you self-publish because no, who knows if anybody's going to buy your stuff, right? I mean, it's fun to, to call somebody and be like, I'm published now. You can go get it. And then you go, you keep checking every week. Three people have bought it. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, and remember, this is the goal of this. And this is what I had to think about for myself as I was deciding which route to go is that the goal is to make copies of your creation available for consumption. Step two, the entire goal is to make sure copies of your work are as available and as perfectly presented as possible for people to consume, for people to take it in, read it, enjoy it, learn from it what you want them to learn. I mean, you owe it to that thing you created to give it every opportunity possible, right? I... I always think about the people like myself, even when I would write and write and then just put it in a box. And it's wonderful. You know, it's fun to write. But what good is it? Right. What it's like putting your light under the bushel. Right. It's it's this gift God gave you. I think that if God gave you a gift to write, then publishing is something that should definitely be part of your plan to show God's creativity to the world. So step two. And I chose to go the traditional publishing route. And I'll tell you guys why when we look at the next step. But I chose to go that route, so we found a publisher. Uh, I was, again, so fortunate. My agent uh, contacted me, and and after so many editors had found me annoying, like I said, uh, the one who did not turned out to be uh, the guy at Simon & Schuster, who uh, he was fantastic. He's he's worked with Newberry winners and Prince winners, and none of those are me yet. But uh, he's worked with all those guys, and it was just another – moment where I said, thank you, Jesus, because I had no business being in this field. I had no business finding any kind of success, and yet it was happening. So, all right, that is step two. And now for step three, which is, all right, before we get to step three, here's the hard truth. Anyone can create. And I mean that. Some people are like, I can't. I'm not creative. No, that's not true. You were made in God's image, and God's a creator. So you are creative. Anyone can create, right? Also, anyone can produce. We already showed that. You can go on Twitter, and you can, I mean, if you really wanted to, you could tweet your book one tweet at a time for the next year and get it out there. Anyone can produce. Good luck with that. But anyone can. But publishing success or failure is decided in the third step. It's decided in how you distribute because you put it up there and nobody buys it. Then I would argue that you may not have been a success at publishing. So the odds are much more in your favor on the next step. If you've taken care on the first two steps, if you created the best thing you could possibly create. And if you made sure that whoever or however you're producing your book is giving it the best opportunity, making it the best presentation possible, then step three, you have a much higher chance of succeeding than uh, if you don't. If you just, if you wrote it and you're, re- you, you're like, I'm done. I wrote it. I'm done. You don't even revise it. You're not going to succeed. It's just not going to happen. All right. If I went too fast, I'm sorry. But <coughs> I want to make sure I give you guys plenty of time to ask questions. So distribution, finding an audience. This idea of uh, finding the people who will read your book This is where I decided to go with traditional publishing because I write books for kids. And my, especially at the time, there were a lot of questions I had to ask myself about how will my book get into kids' hands that through self-publishing I didn't see it being a viable option. I'll explain why as we go here. So the first thing you need to do is you need to know your target. Who did you write for? I mean, it's great that your mom likes it, right? But besides your mom, who wants to read what you wrote? So, and I, I'm slowing down on this part here because I think this is the part that takes the most care. So, giving you guys some examples. Uh, I wrote children's books. So, in my mind, my books are, are written for, uh, these are for middle schoolers. So, this is for kids age, uh, grades 5 through 8th grade. 
fifth grade through eighth grade. All right, so I have my target. Maybe what you write is uh, you're, you're putting together like a devotional. So your target, at first you're going to think to yourself, oh, Christians, that's who I'm writing for, right? But that's way too broad of a target. I mean, sure, a broad target means you'll hit it, but you're probably not going to hit the center of the target. Uh, you guys ever see The Patriot? You remember that old movie? A super old movie where he said, aim small, miss small. Remember that? The more narrowly you can define your target, the better you will be at hitting your target or at least only barely missing it. So like if your target, uh, say you're putting together your, that one sermon series that you did that just the church went gaga over. And you're like, I want to put this together. All right, so you already know your church liked it. So that helps to know the target is. So now you start building from that. So this sermon really resonated well with uh, young adults from middle class who have one or two children. All right, you just really narrowed that down, and that's great because now you'll know how you're going to spin your target, who you're going to go after. Maybe you're thinking about writing a picture book. Clearly, the picture book target would be you know, kids who are and their parents who are uh, infants through uh, elementary age, right? Knowing your target is essential. And here in a second, when we're doing our question time, I'll maybe, if you guys have any questions about that, I can help you kind of define your targets for whatever you're writing a little bit. I hope to give you guys that, that uh, help. So there is already an audience for your work. They just aren't aware your work exists yet. The, the person who's going to love whatever you wrote is out there. They just don't know you wrote it yet. And it's your job to fix that problem. To make sure that, that person, whoever it is, you know, you wrote that cozy mystery starring the zebra who drinks tea. I don't know. All right. Now, there's somebody out there that she's got her whole living room filled up with zebras and teacups. And she's re- she is ready for your book. You just got to find her, right? So you got to know your target. The second thing you need to know, and this is essential, is you got to know your gatekeepers. What do I mean by that? Gatekeepers are the people who protect your audience from subpar or dangerous writing. So let's say that you write, like you're writing a devotional, you're writing a sermon series. Who's going to be the gatekeeper for your audience? Pastors, right? Yeah. Like if if I wrote this book talking about how, you know, uh, Buddha and Jesus are twins and I want somebody at Warren First Assembly to read it, Pastor Derek is going to say, how about we go sit down and, and, and you just don't pass that out in my church, right? Like, he's the gatekeeper. He's going to protect them. Now, for kids, who are the gatekeepers when we're talking about kids' books? Parents and also teachers. Yeah, parents and teachers. So these are the people who are protecting the audience I want from reading something that might be dangerous for them or that just isn't very good quality. You know, your devotion, your devotional you want to write, the, the, uh, goes all the way across the board. You just want to write a mystery for people. Well, there are tons of magazines and reviewers out there that have as their goal to keep the readers of their magazine from reading something that is going to be subpar, that's not going to be entertaining. So they make it their goal as they review books to make sure that the readers of the review magazine are getting the best books possible. So you have to know who your gatekeepers are for your audience. And then you have to, where are they at? There we go. You also have to know who your audience trusts. And that's different from the gatekeepers necessarily, from the protectors. Who do they trust for book recommendations? Like kids, kids will trust their teachers and their parents, but they'll also trust their friends for book recommendations, right? Uh, A Christian uh, who is looking for a good devotional, they're definitely going to go to like a Sunday school teacher or they might go to uh, a more mature Christian that they know is a, a, a well-read individual. So who does your audience trust to give them book recommendations? Once you know your target, your gatekeepers, then you can know your leaders. And by that, I mean who has influence over your audience? Who are the people that drive your, your audience? Who do they listen to the most? Whose opinion matters? And so for kids, kids definitely have gatekeepers and their teachers and their parents, but they, honest, like they will not tell you any day of the week that they care about the opinion of their parents. Are they, no, my parents do not define what's cool for me, Mom. It's my friends. It's media. It's the TV, right? It's the, the musicians. So the 
the influencers, the leaders, are different from the gatekeepers. Who's going to, you know, a person might not necessarily trust that a musician is going to be looking out to protect them from a bad devotional. But if this one musician happens to endorse a devotional, well, I'll definitely listen to that, right? I, I'm going to go check that out. So these leaders are the people who have influence. And what other writers already have a voice in your audience? So whenever I was, uh, we, my book had been uh, sold, the rights to reproduce it, to copy it, had been sold to Simon & Schuster, I had to start answering these questions. And I realized that if I sat back and just let them publish my book and then just sat back and watched it happen, I would be doomed <laughs> because... Like I already said, they have so many other books to publish. I'm the only person who cares the most about this book until it actually comes out and other fans can read it. So I had to start doing my research. And one of the things that I started doing was I started connecting on Twitter, Instagram, things like that with teachers, book reviewers, parents, other authors before my book even came out to start building a relationship with them and just say, hey, I'd like to get to know you. Now, sometimes they rejected it. They didn't want it. But a lot of times I did make these connections and those connections really helped out whenever the book uh, came out. I was able to get into schools. Uh, I was able to get into schools through these connections uh, to, to talk to students about my book. I was able to get into libraries and bookstores because I had made these connections with these gatekeepers and with the, uh, the leaders. I was able, because I got to know other authors, those other authors who already had books that had audiences, they invited me to come with them to events. So even though I had, like I had, my first event happened four months before my first book came out because I'd gotten to know the authors of this event. So they invited me to come along and all I had was bookmarks. And I just handed out bookmarks to all the students. But on those bookmarks, there was a pre-sale link. And so the students could then go and go to the pre-sale and, and purchase the book. And in doing that, in working the crowd, knowing all these things, I was able to, to set myself up not to fail, right? To set myself up to succeed at some point. Uh, and it, in my opinion, success as an author is defined by being able to write more. <laughs> so uh, when this came out, I at least did good enough that they let me write again. And that's really what I consider to be very successful. The one thing I can control is being able to write more. All right, so uh, work in the crowd, using your connections to match people in your audience with your work. And here's the one thing I always end when I'm talking to authors about this, because I think as authors we forget this. You need to be the kind of person that people want to see succeed. A lot of times people will depend on like viral marketing and they'll be like, oh, I'm just going to go viral. I'm going to have an awesome marketing plan. And that almost never works. But what I've discovered is that if you are the kind of person that people want to see succeed, then they go out of their way to try to make sure your success happens. Right? If they like you, if you're genuinely a kind, good person, a Christian person, right? If you are shining the light of Jesus in your life and through your work, then people will just be like, yeah, I, I really want to see him have something good happen. I want to, I want to drop his name here. I'm going to recommend his book or her book. I'm going to, I'm going to push for her to have uh, a, a, a review in this magazine, all because of the type of person that you are, right? And I think it, it it's, it's been kind of my credo as I've gone through this whole thing that my number one priority, and it's kind of, we say it a lot, but the number one priority is to show Jesus through my life and through my work. And so I've worked so hard to be the kind of person that people would want to see succeed. And in doing that, I've, I've seen my career be able to keep going. Uh, not, I've, I've never had a viral success, right? I've never had just uh, anything take off to where people are, are going crazy on, on the streets. But I've had success because I've, I know people and I've made those connections. And that's where the success in publishing has come from for me. So all that then to say this. And like I said, I wanted to make sure I gave plenty of time because there's always questions. Anybody have any questions? Let's, let's, we have 15 minutes for questions. So we'll start right there. Yeah. Yes. Right. 
Yeah. Oh, good question. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. 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 That's a great question, actually, and that's probably one that a lot of authors get kind of tangled up on. Uh, the question is, uh, what does the relationship with an agent look like, and how did I know that I had a legitimate agent, and financially, especially, what does that look like? Um, I did. I definitely did my research whenever she contacted me. Uh, I, I took her name and I, I Googled her, right? And I, I was able to find what agency she was with. I looked to see who she represented, what other books she represented. I sent emails out to some of those other authors by finding their contact information, saying, hey, is this legit? Is she really the person she says she is? You know, she'd given me her phone number. So I was like, hey, she says she represents you. Is this her number? Yes, it is. Okay, good, right? So uh, it's very important because there's a lot of scams out there. There's a lot of predators because authors, we, we're alone a lot, <laughs> we, right? And so people kind of prey on the lonely and the, and the weak. So, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of scams out there. The way that relationship looks is, is fantastic. And I know that, that, that seems superfluous, but uh, it's, I can email her anytime with any kind of question. And she is really rapid at, at contacting me back. Uh, she has every step of the way with everything I write, whether it's something that's been published or something that we eventually tossed out. She has always been a listening ear. Everything I've sent her, you know, she has read it and she's gotten back with me with feedback. She sends me back document with, with edits or notes on the side for me. Um, it's been fantastic. And contractually, uh, as far as finances go, is she gets, uh, she gets 15% of what I get. So I don't pay her anything up front, and I would definitely recommend to never pay an agent up front for anything because that's one of the earmarks of a scam. Um, I mean, some agents that are legit have done that. Uh, I, I don't see why they would do that, you know. Uh, I mean, it's the same thing as like um, a, a realtor, right? A realtor will take it off of the sell. They're not going to ask you to pay. It's the same thing. Um, so, yeah, but... And, and anytime, if you're in a literary agent relationship and you don't feel comfortable talking to your agent, then you should change. You should get a different agent because, you know, you have to be have the freedom to be creative and the freedom to at two in the morning send an email and know that she's not going to be annoyed by getting a notification and things like that because it's her job, right? It's what, what she or he does. Um, great question. Yeah. Did that, did that answer your question? Okay, great. Uh, had another question? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, it really depends upon the situation that you're stepping into. Sometimes you have, like if, you, if you're a picture book writer especially, uh, you might have a partnership with someone that you know well, uh, and especially if they're already established and you've talked to them, uh, you can, that can be a real big selling point to say, hey, this, he, there's already an artist attached to the project. Um, Sometimes also you might have an idea of how you want the illustrations to go. Because um, like for me, when it came to this book, I knew that I, I wanted uh, magic tricks diagrams in here for kids to learn how to do magic tricks on their own. So what I did was I went ahead and drew the magic tricks myself. I can find them. And, um, and then they found an illustrator who could take what I had drawn uh, which was very, my mind was mainly sketch figures, right? But they found an illustrator who could take what I had drawn and execute it uh, to a way that was true to my drawing. So I didn't, I didn't pick this illustrator himself, but I had a great amount of input into what he drew for the book. Uh, some of that is just dependent upon the editor that you work with. Um, and like I said, sometimes you might have a say on the illustrator. So it, uh, is it one that like like you illustrated it or your yeah it, it depends like usually there's two separate contracts there's a contract for the writer and there's a contact a contract for the illustrator so they would want just from legal or a legal perspective since they're dealing with two separate entities uh, it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to as you and the author say here's this book it would have to be both of you coming together. And you'd probably have to be okay with the fact that they might say, I like the writing, I don't like the drawings, let's get rid of the drawings and we'll just take the writing. 
right? So it'd have to be a joint effort with both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'll never speak again, and you'll get rich, and it'll turn into a tragic story. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. And, and I think that's a concern even beyond poetry and short stories. But poetry and short stories does seem to be, and especially, you know, used to be people would kind of laugh at that statement. But in this day of social media, oh, my goodness, it's so we, uh, we find it all the time where, where things that somebody wrote has been massively distributed. Um, you have you own the copyright. Once you've written it, it's yours by law. You don't have to go and register it. You already own it. So uh, th there's kind of a misconception. Sometimes people think that you have to go and get a legal document that says it's yours. You don't have to do that. It's yours. You can. And so if anything like that happens and you legitimately feel like somebody else is making money off of your work, as much as it stinks, uh, you can just get a, a uh, you write them a letter and ask them. There's a form that's called a, uh, a cease and desist. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you can send them a cease and desist form. You can, there's actually forms you can just fill out on the internet. They'll generate one for you. You can send it because that's your legal right to do that, to tell them to not use it. Um, as far as you know, people just getting it and then taking it and enjoying it, uh, if you can't catch them doing it, unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, I mean, that even goes with, with books being pirated. You know, I've, my, all three of my books are, are all over the dark net. <laughs> uh, people can download them for free. And, and it's annoying because every time somebody downloads one of these for free, I'm like, that's a whole buck that I don't get. <laughs> that's a soda. I mean, come on. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, that's a that's and it used to, back in the days before computers, that was a really good idea to do. Now that we have computers and on, on the document that you've made on your computer, there's timestamps that show where everything is, so it's not as important. Uh, I mean, you can definitely do it, you know, uh, and it would just be an added layer of of uh, security, but uh, it's not as yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it sounds hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great question. You know, um, I, I mean, if you can find uh, someone who's willing to work for cheap, then why not? But uh, there, there are, there's also software. Yeah, there's also software, though, like a text-to-typing software that you can use. Uh, there's even free software now that you can find. Just Google text-to-type, and uh, you can, uh, I think uh, there's one that works well with Microsoft Word. Uh, there's one that works well with Google Docs. Um, now that your phones can do the text-to-typing thing, they've had to kind of make all that stuff pretty free to use. So, I mean, it's going to take a lot of editing, though, because you won't realize how often you say, uh, or, mm, or, like, you know, or ramble, and then you go back, and, and, yeah, it takes a lot of editing, but I totally understand if you're just like, I'm so done with typing. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, like, like, my thoughts, you mm -hmm. know, like, it seems like I can speak better yeah. when I take it from here to here. Yep. I totally understand that. Yeah, yeah. I, and I would, if I were you, what I would do is I would record myself talking it out and then play it back. There are actually websites where you can hire somebody to transcribe. Uh, I, I don't remember the name of the website right now, but there's a place where you can hire people to be transcriptionists of your, of your audio files. And, uh, and, and that's definitely a viable option. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really immature, so <laughs> that was no. Um, honestly, I didn't start out going towards uh, children's books. It, it I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, it seems to be a theme in my story, but anyway, because uh, I started writing. Uh, uh, my first book that I ever wrote was a was a fantasy uh, for for like the adult crowd, uh, and that was terrible. 
So I put it away after I was done with it. And then I started writing this book. And when I originally started writing this, I had no intention for this to be a kid's book. It's just the story I knew would start when he was a kid because that just made sense for the story's sake. So I started when he was a kid. And then as I kept writing and writing, I was like, well, I guess he's not going to get any older, is he? So then, <laughs> right, so he stayed a kid. And, and when I was done, then I had to go looking around. And I realized, wow, there's this whole genre for this exact age group. And that's when I stepped into that genre. And then just kind of the culture of the genre and the, and the welcoming of, of all the authors there is why I've kept working in that. And I, children's, book is, uh, children's books are awesome uh, to work with because you have a built-in market. You, you know who your audience is. You have such a supportive system of people who work with it. Um, and it, it, as a Christian, you kind of have a, a step ahead of a lot of people because some people have to have to clean themselves up before they can write children's books. And for us, we're like, we're already there. So it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Thanks. Anybody else have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you can you can hire a designer. Uh, to design your book cover. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, one of the best ways that I've found for anything like that is to find somebody whose work you like on a site like Tumblr that I told about where creators are sharing their stuff there. F or there's other websites like that. There's something called DeviantArt. There's a few others uh, that I can't think of right now. But you find somebody whose work you like and then you reach out to them and ask them what are your rates. Um, but it is going to cost. Uh, same thing with editors. You can hire an editor to edit your work. There are freelance editors all over the place on the Internet. But, again, it's going to cost. Everything that you're doing is going to be an expense, and that's expense you're going to have to pay up front uh, that you may not recoup. But, yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah. I don't know. Let me look. <laughs> I get... Right, so I get 15% off the cover price because they have to pay their people and they have to pay for paper and they have to pay for all the different materials and the, the marketing plan. Right, so I get 15% off the cover price. The cover price is 17 bucks, so 15% of that is like, uh, I guess it's more like 2 bucks, something like that, $2.20 a book, right? So like if, if this book sells, if, just hypothetically, it sold like, uh, 10,000 copies, right? If it sold 10,000 copies, then that's $20,000, right? So, I mean, you're more guaranteed to sell more books going the traditional publishing route, but you will definitely make more money going the self-publishing route per book sold, right? Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> I am, yeah. Wow. I'll be doing three sessions, I think. Yeah. They should just call the OSAM office and, and request to come into my. Yeah, and those are a lot longer, right? Aren't they like an hour and a half long? Or? No, it's a whole day. <gasps> Nine until four. Hopefully, there's a lunch break in between that. Uh, yeah, no, I will be teaching about. Uh, I'll be doing a session on writing, uh, specifically on the writing side of it. So going on the creative, uh, how to write, how to compile your thoughts. Uh, and then we'll also be talking about uh, non-traditional, all those things. So do be looking at OSAM. Sign up for the class. Yes, sir. All right. Um, one thing I was wondering, you talked about traditional and non-traditional. Yeah. I know kind of a newer thing. I've done a little bit of research on it. And I wonder what your thoughts about like hybrid publishing. Yeah. Where you, you do the upfront cost, mm -hmm. but you have a team that already works with publishing. I yep. Know yeah. And uh, Thomas Nelson, they have one such as Westbell where they yeah. pay certain packages mm -hmm. and they have a whole team that yeah. the benefit. Once, once you actually like make so much per book and you already paid off like so much, then you start making more. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Or do you know anyone that has done that? Yeah. That uh, yeah. The, and the hybrid publishing is working out really well for Christian publishers, uh, even more so than most of your like uh, uh, just mainstream publishers. Uh, for whatever reason, but I've been reading a lot about it, that in the Christian publishing world, this hybrid publishing idea of where you are covering, uh, and sometimes they'll say, we'll, we'll do this half of it, you'll do that half, right? So like, you'll take care of the ebook publishing part, we'll do the print, or vice versa, or however it might go, and you'll step in, uh, like you were saying, where you'll have a team that you, that you work with, but it is still very much you're leading the whole thing. Uh, I know a few people that have worked with that. They seem to have gotten some success. Um, I, I don't know enough about it to 
talk about like the how-tos about it yet. Uh, I need to do more research on it. But I think it seems like in the niche market of Christian publishing, because uh, Christian publishing is a niche market, and, and every Christian publisher that you can think of, most of them are owned by one of the bigger yeah. non-Christian publishers, right, the mainstream publishers. But they've relegated that to their niche market publishing houses. Uh, they're publishing imprints that are niche. Uh, because you, it's, it, you can take more risks in those areas, and it seems to be working out really well. For like, I know the Zondervan one specifically is one. Uh, there's somebody I know who's gone through that, and they were really happy they with the product. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and so what they do is they kind of they partner with you as you self-publish, but they're keeping their eye on you to see how it goes, and then once you pass a certain mark of sales and things like that, and they're like, hey, let's come on board and we'll do a second print publishing that's got the Zondervan full label on it. It seems to be like a really, like I said, it, it's a good, partially because in the niche market, uh, your, your, your goals are kind of lower than they are in mainstream publishing. You know what I mean? Because you have such a smaller, a smaller group of people that you're selling to. It's like in Christian publishing, whereas uh, a, a print run of like 2,000 books in, in the mainstream market, people would be like, oh man, that's, that's a terrible number. In the Christian market, 2,000 books, wow, that's amazing. He sold 2,000 books. So because you're talking about a niche market where sales numbers are usually lower, so expectations are lower, it works out really well. Yeah, good question. What's that called? It's hybrid publishing. Hybrid. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I can't, yeah, yeah. And uh, if you look up like hybrid publishing Zondervan, it'd be a really great starting point to find out more about that. Yeah. Great. Uh, I think that's all the time we have. So if you have, uh, if you have any more questions, I'll, I'll chill for like a minute. <laughs> and then after that, uh, thank you thank so much. You.